Daniel chapter number 1. As you turn there, I want to read a passage of Scripture to you, and I hope that's okay. Uh, We're going to be going to several portions of Scripture this morning, and uh, I hate to have you just flipping all over your Bible. Uh, That's how you get them pages uncrisp, amen? But uh, I want to read just two verses to you out of 2 Timothy chapter number 2. And I hope that these will give some context and some understanding to the direction of our message. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 20 says, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, I want you to notice this phrase, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. I want to read that last verse again. If any man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Now, you're in Daniel chapter number 1. I want to read a couple of verses to you there. But I want you to keep those verses in Second Timothy chapter 2 as a theme of sorts for the message this morning. Verse number 1 of Daniel chapter 1 says, In the third year... Of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, bless your word. Use it in a mighty way in hearts. Father, you know the hearts and you know uh, who needs this this morning. Father, I suppose we all do in one way or another. But God, you know whose hearts these will touch upon. So I pray that you'd use it in a mighty way. If there's one amongst us that's lost and undone, I pray you'd show them their need of Calvary. But God, I just pray that everything that'd be done would be done in a way that glorify you. Give me the unction and the power of the Holy Ghost that's needed to stand and to preach. Father, we'll be sure to thank you for it. We love you, Lord. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to preach to you on a thought that I believe is a little bit unique. How many of you have ever heard the phrase used before, trophy of grace? Have you ever heard that phrase used before? We speak often about a person that has uh, dived into the depths of sin in their lost estate. A person that was uh, in many ways uh, used of the devil in a mighty way. And I kind of, I don't know about you, but I kind of think of the Apostle Paul when I think of a trophy of grace. A man that though he would have been considered moral to the outward world, he was being used of Satan in a mighty way uh, to persecute the church. On the road to Damascus, the Bible teaches... Uh, that a light shone from heaven, that God knocked uh, Paul off of his horse, showed him his need of salvation. And that day, a man that had been uh, a great uh, utensil and a great vessel for Satan's use was broken and remade as a vessel for the glory of God. And Paul's life stood as a testimony to the saving grace of God. Uh, Paul, I suppose, talked more about grace in the epistles that God used him to write uh, than any other of the New Testament writers. He would speak often of the grace of God. He would speak of himself as the chiefest of sinners, but then he would speak of the Lord of glory and the manifold grace of God and the ability of God to change a man and to save him and to make him a new creature. And so we talk about the Apostle Paul and we say he is a trophy of grace. You can look at his life. It is a testimony to the grace of God. 
But the Bible teaches that uh, a person's testimony can be a good testimony or it can be a bad testimony. Don't you believe that? We all have a testimony. Just a question of what kind of testimony that it is. And in 2 Timothy chapter number 2, the Bible likens a believer to a vessel. Uh, some to honor, some to dishonor. Some that have purged themselves of that which dishonors Christ and some that have not. But the Bible says that if a man will do that, he'll be a vessel uh, that is honored and sanctified and meet for the Master's use. I want to preach to you on a simple thought this morning. Uh, we speak often of trophies of grace. But I believe in Daniel chapter number 1, we're introduced to a picture that shows us a trophy of sin. Do you know that that, that matter and that business goes both ways? Uh, certainly it is a testimony to a lost and dying world when the chief, chiefest of sinners breaks and falls upon their knees and calls upon the Lord of glory. That's a testimony. Oh, I don't know if you know the name Mordecai Ham. Some of you may. But he was a revivalist in Texas in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. He fought the saloon business, just about got killed several times. But uh, his advice that was given to my pastor concerning a revival when I was growing up is he would always say, you go into a town to do a revival, try to find the meanest, most low-down, wicked, godless scoundrel, try to find the fellow they're scared of, and win him to Jesus Christ. said, if you do that, you'd be amazed what that'll do for a meeting, because that man would stand as a trophy of grace. But I've been around preaching enough, and I've preached enough, and I've listened to enough preaching to know that the flip side of that is there's a lot of young people and old people alike that a preacher will stand in a pulpit and as he preaches and warns against sin in the life of a believer, he will begin to use illustrations about people that he has known, young people and old people, uh, people that had once been great and mightily used of God and then others that were just newborn babes in Christ uh, that were taken and made a trophy of sin. A picture of what sin could do, not in the life of a lost person, but in the life of a believer. Can I say that we live in a day when you can look around and you can see broken lives and you can see broken homes. You can see young people whose lives at a very early age have gone to absolutely nothing. And sad to say it, friend, a lot of them are saved by the grace of God, but their life is in a wreck and they stand as a trophy of sin. I believe that the devil likes to point at them and show what sin and what he's done in life. I believe that the devil likes to look at them and hold them forth. I believe that there's some that are already devastated and some that are not quite so devastated yet. Do you know that sin always elevates in the beginning and it always devastates in the ending? Did you know that? Uh, you can watch the TV and they don't ever paint up. You won't ever see a beer commercial on the television uh, with the fellow going home beating his wife and uh, beating his kids and kicking his dog. And You won't ever see that. They always try to elevate it as high as they can. But you see the end of it, and the Bible says that it, at the end it biteth like an adder. Sin always has consequences. I want you to keep in mind this morning, as we look at a few passages of Scripture, this idea of the vessels that were taken from the house of God and placed, the Bible says in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 2, in the treasure house of Nebuchadnezzar's God. And I want us to examine our own hearts this morning. As I read these passages, one of the first questions I began to ask is what does the Bible say about these vessels? What does it teach us about these vessels? And as I got to looking and studying, I found in 2 Kings chapter 24 a parallel account of what took place. And listen to what it says. It says in Jehoiakim, the king of Judah went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his princes and his officers, and the king of Babylon took him in the eighth year of his reign, 
And he carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces, listen, all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord as the Lord had said. So we learn that these vessels that are spoken of in Daniel chapter 1 are the vessels that Solomon uh, would have commissioned to be created for the use in the temple. And there's a list of them. I'm not going to spend the time reading through the list of them. Well, I'll tell you what. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 7. Let's take a moment and look at their design. I believe that would help us this morning to understand that these vessels were designed a certain way. Do you know that you and I were created for a certain purpose and in a certain way? The Bible says we're created in the image of God. Uh, we're birthed into the family of God by the Holy Ghost. The first time we're created in a natural birth, we're created in God's image. And when we're born again by the new birth, we're created in Christ's image. There is a purpose to our lives. Listen to what the Bible says in First uh, Kings chapter number 7. Uh, and I want you to look with me down at verse number 48. Verse 48 of 1 Kings chapter number 7. Just a few verses that we'll read. But the Bible says, And Solomon made all the vessels that pertained unto the house of the Lord, the altar of gold and the table of gold whereupon the showbread was, and the candlesticks of pure gold, five on the right side and five on the left before the oracle, with the flowers and the lamps and the tongs of gold and the bowls and the... Now, you, you backy users, don't get excited. This isn't what you think it is. And the snuffers and the basins and the spoons and the censers of pure gold and the hinges of gold, both for the doors of the inner house, the most holy place, and for the doors of the house to wit of the temple. So was ended all the work that King Solomon made uh, for the house of the Lord. And Solomon brought in the things which David his father had dedicated, even the silver and the gold and the vessels did he put among the treasures of the house of the Lord. So these are the vessels that are being spoken of in Daniel chapter number 1. As I got to reading that, I kind of thought about a few things. Verse number 48 tells me that when they were designed, they were designed with purpose. The Bible says that they pertained unto the house of the Lord. You see, these things were not created just to be showpieces. Now, certainly, if you had seen these vessels, they would have been mighty beautiful. I mean, they would have been gold and silver, and they're described there before us, uh, ornate uh, uh, engraving and carving upon it, and it would have been a beautiful thing. But ultimately, when these vessels were created, they were created with a singular purpose. And you go through these different vessels, and you'll find that each of them had their own distinct purpose. Can I say to you this morning that when God created us, He created us with purpose. When He saved you, He saved you for service. He didn't save you for sitting. You have a purpose in your life that God is looking for you to fulfill. And you say, preacher, uh, is there any way that I can miss that purpose? Well, sure there is. In fact, we find that for 70 years, these vessels did not meet the purpose for which God had created them. And sad to say, do you know a lot of Christians are living without fulfilling the purpose for which God has created them? God has created you for one singular purpose and then for one singular work. Listen carefully. God has created you. The purpose is for His glory. You know that any vessels probably would have done. I mean, it didn't have to be made out of gold and silver. But God demanded and commanded and designed that these would be made out of gold and out of silver because He wanted to show His own glory. He wanted people to understand when they took that cup into their hand that they were doing something for a holy God. And do you know that any action that you commit, the purpose of it ought to be the glory of God? 
There's a lot of people that are living and professing Christianity, but because there's so much sin in their life, there's not a stitch of the glory of God upon them. I mean, God is not anywhere within a thousand miles of their daily routine. And when a sinner looks upon their life, they don't look upward and glorify God. They look inward and glorify self because that's what they see in their life. We see that they were designed with purpose. But I want to say that they were designed with a proper place. The Bible says, for the house of the Lord. God had a place and location. Do you know that God has a, God cares what you do in your life? I know this is so contrary to the philosophy of this world. You know why people are atheists and agnostics? You want to listen to me carefully this morning? People are atheists and agnostics because they don't want to think God cares anything about their life and is going to hold them accountable. That's really what it amounts to. It's an authority issue. They want to live their life their way and believe that they'll never have to answer for it. You know, the Bible teaches the exact opposite of this, Brother Ralph. The Bible teaches that God has a particular place He wants us to be. I think it's interesting that they were placed within the house of the Lord. They were placed in a, in a location where they could serve God and be of use. Let me tell you something. Let me make a statement. I hope nobody will get mad at me this morning. But do you know that God has placed you where you're at to serve? You say, well, you know, preacher, I can't do what a lot of people can do. That's probably very well true, but we can all do something. I mean, you may not be able to do everything. Let me tell you something, friend. This preacher out here cannot do everything. But everyone can do something for Jesus Christ. He has put you in a place. Listen, if you're in a place where you're not serving God, you need to get in a place where you are serving God. You say, maybe I need to change locations. Maybe you need to change ambitions. Amen? You see, the fact is, they were placed in a particular place where they could be of use and of service. But I want to say not only were they purposed and placed, but they were precious. I don't know about you, but they must have meant something to Nebuchadnezzar because he took them with him. They were silver and gold. They were precious in the eyes of those that love the Lord and in the eyes of an almighty God. I, I know, I know uh, that we have a lot of uh, self-help in the day that we live in. I know that we have a lot of self-esteem builders. But let me tell you something, friend. You're never going to find a better self-esteem builder than to look at the cross of Calvary and say that the God of heaven did that for me. I mean, you're not going to find anything better than that. I don't know if you realize this, but you're precious in God's eyes. Uh, this world may not value you, but you're precious in God's eyes. This world may not see anything of significance in you, but you're precious in God's eyes. God cares about you. You mean something to God. And isn't it sad that people that God's given purpose and God's given a place to and people that are precious in God's eyes could be used for the devil's cause? But we see in this passage, that's exactly what happened. I'm talking about people that had been, oh my, when I look at this uh, passage of Scripture, I see so many parallels to the Christian life. They're created holy for His glory. They were created holy for His purpose. That's you. That's me. That's why we're here and sad to say, but many of us are toiling our lives away in the work of Satan. We see that there was a design to them. And I'm just going to give this to you quick, because if I don't, I'll, uh, you'll be here. Uh, you won't, I won't have to worry about whether you'll come back for church tonight. <laughs> Amen. If I don't hurry, because uh, uh, you'll be here uh, for at 6 o'clock anyway. Uh, but I want to say we see their design. But I want to say that in Daniel chapter 1, we see them detained. We see a transformation took place. They had been in the house of God. But in two short verses, they've made the long trip. Modern-day Iraq is uh, the empire of Babylon. They made the, uh, the transition uh, from the house of God to the treasure house of Nebuchadnezzar. How did that happen? What took place 
in those moments. And let me ask you this simple question. What does it take for a Christian to get out into the world? It doesn't seem like it takes very much in these days, does it? You see many people that were once serving God and no longer are. You see many people that were once on fire for Jesus Christ no longer are. You see people whose hearts at one time were so tender and so fresh. And all it took, my friend, you could stand and you can just say the name of Jesus three times. They'd fall at the altar, find something to repent of just because they wanted to feel close to Him. I'm talking about a love for Jesus Christ. But we've moved away from that. What happened? I want you to notice three things. First, I want you to notice they were removed from the place they had been. Before Nebuchadnezzar did anything, he took them out of the house of the Lord and began to travel with them. Let me tell you something, and please, please listen to this this morning. Please listen to this. Please don't let it be tinged with any any feelings of accusation because there's none intended. Listen to me carefully. The first thing Satan has to do if he's going to wreck your life is get you out of church. That's a first step that he takes. If he can get you out of church, you're not long. You're not long. Until you're going to be out in the midst of sin. It always concerns me. And I've seen this with young I've seen it with adults too. But as a youth pastor, I would see this with young people and in young people's lives. When a person begins to get farther away from God, they begin to separate themselves from their godly influences. I had friends growing up that I could tell when they were out in sin. And I'm not trying to lift myself up. There's times I was too. There's times I did this as well. But the times that I was close to God and growing up, I could see it in my friends' lives when they were getting farther away. They quit picking up the phone and calling me. Some of you have family members that you can tell when they're far away from God. They don't want to have anything to do with you. Or maybe you are that family member that quits picking up the phone because there's something wrong in their life. If Satan gets you out of church, he's cut you off from your food supply. Number one rule of siege warfare, do everything you can to cut off their food supply. Is that not right? And let me tell you something. Satan uh, masters in siege warfare. He will wait you out if you let him. And the first thing he's going to try to do, he's going to try to cut off that food supply. He's going to try to cut you off from the preaching of the Word of God, from the fellowship of the saints. He's going to try to cut you off uh, from the convicting power of the Holy Ghost through the Word of God. You'll find you get out in sin, and there's some things that are going to be removed from your life. Some things that Satan has to get out of the way if he's ever going to take hold of your life. We see that they were removed. But I want you to notice this. This may confuse you, but listen carefully. I want to say they were revered. They were revered. When Nebuchadnezzar took them out, the Bible says they put them in the treasure house of his God. This would have been known as the Tower of Baal. Not the Tower of Babel, but the Tower of Baal. The Tower of Baal, and most of you know, if you've ever done any study on the ancient city of Babylon, uh, the Bible uh, calls it the glory of uh, nations. It was probably one of the most beautiful cities ever to have been built. We could stand and talk for hours uh, about uh, the city of Babylon. It was surrounded, uh, it was uh, 15 miles by 15 miles, the city was, a perfect square. It was surrounded by a wall that was 87 uh, feet thick. Six chariots could ride side by side across the top of that wall. Uh, There was another wall that was inside of it. It was dissected into, I think it was 637 squares. Uh, The streets ran at perfect perpendicular angles. It were right angles, uh, one of another. And it was a beautiful city. The Euphrates River cut diagonally across underneath it and gave it a water supply. And we could talk for hours about the hanging gardens that Nebuchadnezzar uh, had built for his wife and the beautiful wonders. But I want to say a word about the Tower of Bel because that's where they would have taken these treasures to. The Tower of Baal was eight 
towers stacked one on top of each other, 75 foot high each. Uh, combined with the chapel area that would have been built upon the top, it would have been 660 feet high. This is where these treasures were taken to. And very likely they were probably taken to a place high up within it. Can I say to you that sin always makes you feel good at the outset? When they took these vessels out, they placed them in a lavish place. They made them feel, hey, probably they were surrounded by beauty in the Tower of Baal, just like they had been surrounded by beauty in Solomon's temple. Do you know that the devil is going to try to make sin as comfortable as he can for you at the outset? Sin always elevates in the beginning. That's why you know what happens? People get out of church and you know what they think to themselves? They think, well, this ain't so bad. I can sleep in on Sundays. I ain't got to go listen to that loud mouth preacher with that ugly beard. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I can kind of do what I want. I've not got all them people bugging me, wanting me to pray for them and this, that, and the other. Hey, this isn't bad. When there's a three-day weekend, I can take me a vacation. I can be gone the whole time. I can do whatever I want. I can stay home. I can watch football on Sundays. I can do whatever I want. Hey, this isn't that bad. The devil always tries to elevate in the beginning of sin. Put you in a place of comfort. You know, he's smart. (laughs) He's smart. He knows that if it hurt from the outset, he'd never get you. They were revered. But you know the acid test? You know how you can tell it was the devil's work and not the Lord's? Listen carefully. Not only were they removed and revered, but they were retired from service. They looked just as beautiful as they did before. If you'd looked at them vessels, you wouldn't have thought anything was wrong. If you'd looked at the circumstances and the setting of those vessels, they were surrounded by beauty and lavishness. But you know how you could tell something was wrong? They had been brought out of service. Decommissioned. Let me tell you something, I understand we all serve God in different capacities. I understand some people do not have the wherewithal to do some things. But as I said earlier, uh, nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something. And listen, something's wrong when people start giving up serving God. I'm not saying there's not times in a person's life. I mean, hey, uh, if, if your job was to uh, get out, if we ran marathons, I don't know, that's silly, that's dumb, isn't it, Brother Rapp? But if we ran marathons for Christ, I'm sure there's some church that does it around here. If that's what we did, I understand you might get to an age where you just couldn't run the marathon no more. I mean, if your job is climb up and scrub the steeple with a toothbrush, I understand you may get to a place where you can't do that anymore. But when you see people that could be serving God backing away from doing it, you can mark her down. There's something wrong in their life. There's something wrong. Uh, whenever we, because that's the work He's called us to do. We're here for His glory, but we're here for uh, His work as well. We're here to serve Him. Neighbor, you can, you can die with a fat bank account and a big old house and every car you could ever wish, but if you've wasted your life without serving Christ, then you're bankrupt when you enter into heaven's gate. They were retired. They were put out of use. And there they sat for a number of years, Brother Ralph. There they sat. Everything seems good and everything seems well. We see them detained. But I want you to turn with me to chapter 5 of the book of Daniel. We see these vessels once again. Uh, For four chapters, they lay in silence. Uh, Through the majority of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, life, they lay in silence. And it's insignificant. And sometimes that's the way sin is. The devil lets sin go a long time before it wrecks you. But look in chapter number 5 with me. Chapter number 5. We see them again. Verse number 1. The Bible says Belshazzar. This would have been the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. 
and his father, Nabonidus, would have been the king at this time. But Nabonidus had a kind of a, a, a penchant for archaeology. He was running around the world trying to uh, dig up various manuscripts, things of that nature. He had no interest in ruling the kingdom. And so Belshazzar was ruling in his stead. This is why at the end of this chapter, Belshazzar offers to make Daniel the third in the kingdom. Not the second, but the third. Because his father was the first and he was the second. And so Belshazzar is the acting king, if you will, at the time in Babylon. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. One of the saddest verses in that entire King James Bible, verse 3 says, Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine, praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood and of stone. For many years, they had left dormant. They had left, had been left undisturbed. But the Bible teaches, and by the way, this was the very night in which Cyrus would conquer the city of Babylon. Just to give you just a, a, a touch of history, and I won't take too much time, the river Euphrates flowed under the walls into the city of Babylon. Babylon was a siege-proof city. Uh, they had enough provisions to live for seven years without ever having uh, to put a, a tiller to the ground. And then even after that, they had enough land they could have plowed up that they could have lived indefinitely. They were a siege-proof uh, city. But on either side of the Euphrates River that ran underneath it, they had an inner wall between the banks and the rest of the city. And this wall was there to be protective. And in this wall, and by the way, you'll find this prophesied in the book of Isaiah, there were two brass gates that were uh, set upon this wall. And they were there so that should anybody happen to make it under the walls, they could not get into the rest of the city. History tells us that upon that night of drunken revelry, it just so happened someone had left that gate unlocked, Brother Ralph. They didn't have to beat it down. It was left open. Cyrus, quietly, outside with the Medo-Persian army, dug a diverting trench and literally rerouted the Euphrates River around the city of Babylon, drying the riverbed so his army could go underneath. And there upon that night, as the Bible had prophesied, the kingdom of Babylon was given into the hands of the Medes and the Persians. The Bible, or history teaches us uh, that under this city, uh, on either side of a great bridge that was built spanning the Euphrates, there were great temples that were built. And underneath these temples, connecting them together, was a great passageway or a tube or a, a subway type area, a sewer system, if you will, but a large underground tunnel that went underneath the riverbed and connected these two palaces. And down into this tube and passageway, there were great, vast banquet halls that had been built. And it's very likely, it's very likely that Belshazzar's feast was uh, carried out in one of these uh, great banquet halls and feast halls. We see them detained. But in Daniel chapter 5, we see these vessels defiled. They were taken out of the Tower of Baal 
You remember I said sin elevates in the beginning. It devastates at the end. They went from being in the highest of the highs to the lowest of the lows in those banquet halls. And there they brought these vessels. And we see that these vessels become, listen carefully, first off they became slaves to iniquity. These vessels had no choice, no say in the matter. These vessels had no decision. They were to be used solely for the purpose of drinking this poison, drinking this alcohol. And not only did they drink, but they drank to the gods of gold and silver and iron and wood. Let me tell you something. Sin will make you do things you never dreamed you'd do. Things you'd never dream you'd do. I used to tell our young people that a, a, a prostitute didn't grow up saying, I want to sell my body. A drug addict didn't grow up saying, I want to get hooked on drugs and be strung out. The drunkard did not say, I want to go home, beat my children, drink myself to death. The drunkard did not say that. He never intended for sin to take him as far as it took him. Sin always takes you to depths you'd never dream of. You'd never dream of. Things you thought you'd never... I'm not just talking about lows. I'm not just talking about winding up in the pigsty. The Bible says of the prodigal son that he feigned to fill his belly with the husks of the swine. It changed his desires. It changed what he wanted. That was when he woke up. Is when he realized, my father's servants have enough to eat and to spare. Look where I'm at. It wasn't that he was lamenting he was in the pigsty. It was he was lamenting that he would eat what the pigs were eating. He realized not just that I'm where I thought I'd never be, but he realized I'm doing things I would have never thought that I would have done. We see they've become a slave to iniquity. Let me say that they became a symbol of idolatry. Do you know there's a reason Belshazzar called for those? I don't think, and laugh if you will, but I don't think there was a shortage of cups in the kingdom, Brother Ralph. I don't think he got them because that was the only choice. Listen to me. Do you know that Satan would a lot sooner destroy a child of God than a lost sinner? The devil would a lot sooner get your life dirtier and more filthy and more unrighteous than he ever would a lost sinner. He can keep a lost sinner moral and send him to hell. But he wants to destroy the Christian and show them, make an open show and show them as a trophy. That's what Belshazzar was doing. Belshazzar got drunk enough till he got up some courage and he said, I want you to bring me those vessels. What he was saying, listen carefully, when, when they would do this with uh, the holy utensils and gods of other nations, they were doing it to show the supremacy of their own gods. That's what they were doing. And you may not realize it, friend, but when you live in sin, you may think it's a good time, but the devil's using it as a horrible testimony to show to a lost and dying world. Somebody's looking at you and saying, if that's what a Christian is, I don't want nothing to do with it. You become a symbol for what a false and empty and hollow Christianity is when you live in sin. And that's true of me as well. They became a symbol of that. They were drinking out to prove a point and to show their supremacy. And there's some people that think they're living out and having a good time. And there's some people that think their life is in their control. And they're nothing but a pawn of Satan to show to this world that Jesus Christ is a fraud. That's all that the devil's trying to use them for. They became a symbol of idolatry. But I like this. I want to read a verse to you that I never thought about in this context until I was studying for this passage. 
We see in this passage a slave to iniquity, and we see a symbol of idolatry. But as we read a little further, listen to what verse 5 says in Daniel chapter 5. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loose and his knees smote one against another. The proclamation is given later on in the chapter, verse number uh, 25, when it says, and this is the writing that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upharsin. This is the interpretation of the thing. Mene, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Uh, Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Uh, listen carefully to me this morning. If you're in this shape, and I don't know anybody's, lives, let alone their hearts. I mean, I'll be honest. I don't want to know. It'd scare me. <laughs> Might scare you. know mine too. But we see them as a slave of iniquity. We see them as a symbol of idolatry. But thank the God in heaven that we see also a source of illumination. Let me tell you something. You may not believe this, and you're entitled to your opinion about this, but you're going to have to do an awful lot of chapter and inversing to convince me otherwise. The Bible says the candlestick. I think that candlestick was the very same candlestick that had sat in the temple of a holy God and gave light to the worship and to the ministration of the priests. This candlestick was a picture of the Holy Ghost, a picture of the illuminating power of the Spirit of God concerning the work of Christ. And you know what? That very temple that had been, uh, that very candlestick that had been burned in worship was now being burned in warning. There may be some of you here today. There'll come a time when you'll hear this sermon again in your heart and mind. The candlestick that is now burning in worship. I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about the power of the Holy Ghost to convict hearts and to show you the truth. The power of the Holy Ghost that's working in worship right now may once again one day work in warning in your life. There was a provision of judgment and of warning of judgment to come. There was a voice that could be heard. There was a warning that could be heeded. There was a truth that could be learned. There was a way out. Listen to me this morning. Aren't you thankful? Aren't Wonder who it was that made that prodigal son come to himself in the midst of that pigsty. You know, a man doesn't do that on his own. Doesn't do that on his own. There's some of you that today that candlestick is burning. Today, that candlestick, God's trying to show you that you're headed for hard times and heartaches in your life if you don't get it straight. And that candlestick is burning. That candlestick, it may be the candlestick of a sermon long ago preached. It may be the candlestick of a Sunday school lesson taught when you were just a child. Or it may be the candlestick of the sermon that's being spoken today. But the Holy Ghost is trying to get your attention concerning some things in your life. Even in the depths of despair and darkness. So how do you know there was darkness? Because there was a candle lit. Even in the depths of despair and darkness, there was an illuminating light that could show them the truth of the Word of God. I want to give you a final thought, and I'm going to hush. Look with me in Ezra chapter number 1. Ezra chapter number 1. We see in Daniel chapter 1, we see these vessels detained. In Daniel chapter 5, we see these vessels 
defiled. But look with me in Ezra chapter number 1. Let me say, I, I thank the good God of heaven that I don't have to end it with the defilement, aren't you? I'm thankful when we've messed up, it doesn't have to end there. It can end there, friend, but it doesn't have to end there. We see in Ezra chapter 1, we see the vessels delivered. Look at verse number 7 with me. The Bible says, Also Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem and had put them in the house of his gods. Even those did Cyrus, king of Persia, bring forth by the hand of Mithridath the treasure and numbered them unto Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This is the number of them, thirty chargers of gold, a thousand chargers of silver, nine and twenty-nine knives, thirty basins of gold, silver basins of a second sort, four hundred and ten, and other vessels, a thousand. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up with them of the captivity that were brought up from Babylon unto Jerusalem. We see that God made a way back home. The Bible says that it was only a part of these vessels. There was a part that never returned. But there were some of them that got to go home. Let me tell you something. I don't care how deep in sin you are. If you're under the sound of my voice and if the Holy Ghost is tugging at your heart, it's not too late. It's not too late. You do not have to face the short judgment of God. You say, preacher, I I believe in a God of love. Well, you believe in whatever God you want to, but the Bible says judgment beginneth first at the house of God. It's going to begin with the children of God before it ever hits this world. Some men's sins go on before them, and some men uh, deal with them uh, right now. But the fact is, when we live in sin, there is a consequence coming. We see three things. I want you to notice that they were reckoned at their proper price. The Bible says that Cyrus commanded that these should be taken and counted. There wasn't a single one. You can see with the preciseness, the preciseness, of the text, you can see that they counted every one they could find. Let me tell you something. I don't care what's going on in your life. God still cares about you. This this world is never going to see value in you. Sin is never going to see value in you. But the Savior, He's always seen value in you. And He still sees value in you. There's a lot of people think they're worthless. And it's not that they're worthless, it's that they're filthy. There's a lot of people think that God's done give up on them. It's not that. It's that they've done give up on God. God waited till it was four days late, and it still wasn't late for Him. I don't care how messed up your life is. The God of heaven is willing to forgive and to change you. They were reckoned at their proper price, but they were returned to their proper place. A new temple was built, and they were placed therein. You know, I found when people get back right with God, their whole attitude changes about the house of God. You don't have to, you don't have to believe that, but I do. I've seen it. I've seen people that had a bitterness, had an anger, had a hate. I've seen people that, I mean, every time they come through the doors, they look like they'd been uh, dragged by a bull. And they get some things settled in their life, and they get their life straight, and before you know it, man, they're the first to show up, they're the last to leave. They're shaking every hand three or four times. I mean, they're fellowshipping. They're enjoying themselves in the house of God. Isn't it good to be in your proper place? Isn't it good to be in your proper place? Isn't it good to know? Hey, isn't it good when you go to the Lord in prayer not have to ask forgiveness for your unfaithfulness? 
Isn't it good when you go to the Lord in prayer to not have to come with excuses on your lips, but rather come with praise on your lips? They were returned to their proper place. But I want to say that they were reinstituted into their proper use. Reinstituted into their proper use. Those vessels that have been used. What a testimony to the grace of God, Brother Ralph. These vessels that had held the devil's poison would once again be used in the Lord's work. What a testimony that these vessels that have been in the hands of one of the most wicked kings ever to live, what a testimony that these vessels carried aloft to a pagan land would now return to be used in the work and the service of Almighty God. I don't know what you've done. I don't know what's in your life. It may be big to you. It may be small to you. But friend, i got news for you. We've got a God that will forgive you and restore you and use you for His glory and honor. Say, preacher, you don't know the places I've been. Well, they ain't no worse than the places those vessels had been. Preacher, you don't know the things that have been through my body and the things that I have done. It ain't no worse than what they had done. But once again, they could be held in the hands of the great high priest and used for the glory of God.